Now a certain man was ill. His name was Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same woman who had poured perfume on Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The two sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard this, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days and then said to his disciples, Let us return to Judea. But Rabbi, his disciples said, the last time we were in Judea, the people tried to stone you. Do you really want to go back? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of light in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees by the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because he has no light. He went on, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Jesus was talking about death but they thought that he meant getting rest by sleeping. So Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, If he's going, let's go. We might as well die with him. Now when Jesus reached Bethany, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, so many Jews had come from the city to console Mary and Martha in their grief. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed where she was. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. I know, she answered. He will rise in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live, even though they die. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? I'll never forget my first Easter as a pastor. I was 20-something years old and had been pastor of a small Baptist church for about nine months and was barely keeping my head above water. Now, for a preacher, Easter is like the Super Bowl or Game 7 or Day 4 at Augusta National. It's the biggest Sunday of the year and all the pressures on that one sermon, so it better be good. I worked really hard on that message, 15 pages handwritten in pencil on a yellow legal pad. Saturday night, I went up to the church to practice in the empty sanctuary. 
After a couple of hours, I headed out to the car to drive home, my hands full of books and papers, which I held tightly against a strong wind that had blown in. Drove home, went to bed, but with my nerves on edge and the wind howling outside, I hardly slept. Got up super early, still dark outside, went downstairs to work on the message, only to find it wasn't there. I had all my other books, but my portfolio with the sermon manuscript was missing, and suddenly I had a sickening thought. I remembered putting my folder on top of the car to unlock the door the night before. Had I left it on the roof of the car when I drove away in the windstorm? In a panic, I hopped in the car and drove back to church, praying the whole way. Lord, I know you can raise the dead, but if there's any way you can keep my sermon from being blown away, please. I drove down the main street of our town, scanning the sidewalks for for pages blowing in the wind when I noticed right in front of the church, straddling the double yellow lines on the road, I am not making this up, my portfolio lying open in the street. I hopped out for a closer look and there was the yellow legal pad, creased and crumpled from all the cars that had run over it in the night and all 15 pages still intact. Well, as you can imagine, it ended up being a pretty meaningful Sunday for me. We broke 100 for the first time that day, and it marked a turning point in that really difficult first year. So why did I tell you that story this morning? Well, for one thing, it's just a fun story that I don't think I've ever told before. But more to the point, the text and theme I preached that morning is the same text and theme I'll be preaching today. Now, that was a long time ago. I've preached a lot of Easter sermons since then, And I've done more funerals than I care to remember. But I can tell you that I am not only as confident as ever in the message of Easter, I am as grateful as ever for the message of Easter. And especially so this year, having laid both my parents to rest just a month or so ago, just two weeks apart from each other. So I'm excited to be revisiting this text and theme with you today. Now, interestingly, it's not one of the familiar accounts of Christ's resurrection. There are no angels in white. No, he is not here. He's risen. No wonderstruck women running off to tell the disciples. But there is a tomb. There are some women. And there is an empty grave at the end of the story. It's what we might call a prequel to that resurrection morning. And it brings home the message of Easter in a powerful and personal way. And and powerful and personal is what we need today. Because I'm guessing I'm not the only one who's laid a friend or loved one to rest in the past year or so. We all know what it's like to stand beside a grave and grieve and wonder what's next for them and, and us. I'm also guessing I'm not the only one who walks away from those moments and places wanting to to be the best person I can be and live the best possible life I can for as many years as I have left. And I know I'm not the only one whose earthly life will end at one of those places someday where we too will face whatever is on the other side. So let's turn to one of the most dramatic stories we find in the Bible and one of the most outrageous claims Jesus ever made and see if we can't find some help and hope 
for the big questions of life, death, and the life to come. It's the story of Lazarus found in chapter 11 of John's Gospel. Now, we've already heard the setup for the story in this scripture video we just watched, which reminds us that there's a beautiful truth behind what begins as a somber story. Now, a few details we should point out. First of all, we should understand that except for the 12 disciples, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were probably Jesus' closest and dearest friends. We get the sense from the other gospel accounts that Jesus often retreated to their home in Bethany for rest and refreshment. And the fact that he's mentioned last means that Lazarus would likely have been the youngest of the three, possibly a teenager or a young adult. And we're told later that Jesus loved Lazarus very much. Secondly, we should point out that Lazarus was probably already dead by the time Jesus got the news that he was sick. And we're told that Jesus waited two days before leaving for Bethany, and that when he arrived in Bethany, yet another day after that, Lazarus had already been dead for four days. So Lazarus must have died while the messengers were on their way to Jesus. Which is interesting, because in the Jewish understanding, when a person died, their soul remained near their body for three days, and then was gone to the afterlife. So it seems as though Jesus, who knew all things, waited long enough so that by the time he got to Lazarus, the young man would have been, pardon the expression, good and dead. A third thing to point out from the story, from the intro here, is that Jesus viewed death as a temporary condition. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, he said, but I am going there to wake him up. A comment which was probably met with some eye-rolling by his disciples, who likely thought the rabbi had been out in the sun too long. You know how naive those clergy can be. Well, with that in mind, let's pick up the story in verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. Now, a little more background will help set the scene here. In keeping with ancient Jewish customs, Lazarus would have been buried on the same day he died. His body would have been wrapped in cloths, sprinkled with spices and perfumes, a cloth napkin laid across his face. The body would have been laid out in a stone tomb where it would be allowed to decay for the next year or so, after which time the bones would be gathered and placed in a small bone box for final burial. The first 30 days after his death would have been observed as a season of mourning, but the first three days would have been the most intense. Friends and relatives would come, often dressed in sackcloth, and would weep and wail publicly for those three days. Furniture in the house would be deliberately upended to symbolize the disruption and disorientation of the loss. Life and that home would never be the same again. Now, we, we don't typically go to those kinds of lengths in most of our cultural settings today. Or we're a bit more restrained in our response to death. But internally, we know all about that disruption and disorientation, especially when someone dies suddenly or, or in the prime of life. 
But before Jesus could even arrive at the house, Martha comes out to meet him on the road, overwhelmed with grief. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. How many times have those words been echoed by grieving friends or loved ones? If only the doctors had found it sooner. If only she hadn't taken that trip. If only I'd been more attentive. But those if-onlys don't change anything. Death always seems to have the last word. Well, Martha goes on to say one thing more. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Now, it's hard to know exactly what she was thinking at that point. She seemed to believe that Jesus could do something to relieve their distress. But we know from the rest of the story, she never imagined what that something could actually be. And again, I think we can all identify with Martha a bit here. But we all know something about God even if we're not especially religious. And most of us believe something about Jesus. Maybe that he was a great teacher or a prophet or social revolutionary. Maybe even that, that he's our savior. But Jesus is always wanting to show us more about who he is and what he's capable of. So he, he stretches Martha a little bit. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. That's hard to know how Martha received Jesus' words here. Your brother will rise again. It sounds like she was feeling the way we feel when we're standing beside the casket of our loved one. And yet another well-wisher squeezes our hand and reminds us that we'll see them again in heaven someday. Now, we know they mean well, and, and we may even believe them, but it doesn't bring much comfort in the moment. So we, we do what Mary seemed to do. We smile politely and say, yes, I know. But Jesus isn't being polite or predictable here. <laughs> He's about to blow polite and predictable right out of the water. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Well, at this point, let, let's take a step back from the story and try to understand what Jesus is saying here. Because resurrection isn't a word that comes up very often in everyday conversation, aside from this one week of the year. Uh, the other day, I went to get a haircut, and uh, when I walked in, the, the woman who usually does my hair was finishing up with someone else. So she waved across the room, and I waved back and said, yeah, I got to look good for Easter. She said back, I should think so, she said. You're the main attraction. And then she caught herself and said, except for you know who. <laughs> so we sort of laughed a little bit, and and at that point, the, the very elderly man in the chair asked her what we were talking about. So the next thing you know, my not-so-religious hairstylist is trying to explain Easter to one of her customers. I don't think that's the usual conversation at Renzo's hair salon. 
Uh, the point is, resurrection isn't a word we use very often. So let's try to understand what it means. Now, I should first point out that over the past seven weeks now, we've been looking at the I am statements of Jesus. Seven times in the Gospel of John, Jesus describes himself with a word or an image that tells us something about his message and his mission. I am the good shepherd. I am the true vine. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we discover that, that each of these words and images are loaded with meaning and power to shape our lives and faith. But here in John 11, Jesus makes the most outrageous statement of all, describing himself as the resurrection and the life. And likely, Martha would have been as mystified by that name as we are. According to the dictionary, resurrect means to restore a dead person to life, or more colloquially, to bring something back to life. You see, fundamentally, death is about separation, the separation of a person's body from their soul. To be human is to be both body and soul. We have a material self and a spiritual self. Now, I can't see you through the screen right now, but since it's Easter, I'm guessing your material self looks pretty good right now. Or at least it will look good when you get out of your PJs and get your Easter outfit on and head out for brunch. But only you know how your immaterial self is doing right now, how your soul or spirit is doing. You may be as happy and put together as you look on the outside, but you might just as easily be feeling sad, or mad, or, or lonely, or afraid, or cynical about this whole Easter thing. You see, to be human is to be both material and spiritual. And at death, our soul and body are separated. Our material self ceases to function and almost immediately begins to decay. But what happens to our immaterial self, our soul or spirit? Well, for a materialist, that soul or spirit was simply a biochemical phenomenon, and so it also ceases to exist. Uh, from that perspective, life and personhood ends at the grave. You no longer exist, except in people's memory. In most religious traditions, the spiritual self lives on, maybe in a disembodied state, or reincarnated in some other earthly form, or simply absorbed into the universe. According to Jesus and the rest of Scripture, sometime after death, our physical and material selves will be reunited and restored. Because to be human is to be both body and soul. We're told that our, that our souls will receive new and glorified bodies fit for eternal existence, no longer subject to sickness or injury or the aging process. Not that I would know anything about that. Now, when exactly that restoration happens is a little hard to say, because time doesn't really exist on the other side of the grave. So, so maybe it happens right away, maybe it awaits some future final day, but, but, but that's our destiny as human beings to be resurrected. And where exactly we spend that eternity, Jesus seems to be saying, 
depends on how we respond to him and what he's done. Now, now by the way, because people sometimes ask, whether a body is cremated or buried or lost at sea, it can and will be restored and glorified. That's what resurrection means, the restoration and reunion of our bodies and souls. Now, as I mentioned, that concept has become all the more meaningful to me these past couple of months. We laid my parents' bodies to rest about two weeks apart in the Muskinetgong Valley Cemetery out in western Jersey. We touched the caskets and, and said goodbye as they were lowered into the ground. Now, it's a beautiful spot that has some family history for us, and, and I imagine we'll go back there from time to time. But I know they're not there. They're with God and with each other. <laughs> and when I step outside before going to bed at night and, and look up at the stars, I know they're there somewhere and that they are themselves there. And that in God's time, my father's failed heart will beat stronger than ever so he can serve and praise his God forever. And that mom's dementia-riddled mind will be sharper and quicker than ever, able to comprehend the wonders of the universe and her Savior. So when Jesus says, I am the resurrection, he's making a profound and powerful statement about the human experience and our eternal destiny. Do you believe this? He asks Martha. It's a question we all have to answer. What happens to us, what happens to you, when we die physically, depends on how we answer that question. But as, as outrageous as that statement is, I am the resurrection, Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on to say something else. I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. When Jesus says, I am the resurrection, He's talking mainly about physical life, what happens to our bodies. When he says, I am the life, he's talking about spiritual life, what happens to our souls, our spirits, that which makes you, you, and me, me, your talents, your temperament, your unique personhood. Jesus is saying, I am the source of that life. And as long as you believe in me, as long as you are receiving life from me, you will never cease to live and to be you. Even when your earthly physical body gives out, you can still live with me forever. Do you believe this? He asks Martha. You see, Jesus isn't talking about pie in the sky in the sweet by and by. He's not just saying, you'll see your brother again in heaven someday. He's saying, I can give life to your brother today, Martha, and I can give life to you today, Martha, like, life like you never imagined. Do you believe this? Well, Martha says she believes it, 
But Jesus is about to make sure she believes it. So at that point, Martha runs back to the house to fetch Mary. She comes out to Jesus, even more distraught than Martha was. John tells us, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then, the shortest and perhaps most poignant verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Now, what was he weeping about? Was he weeping at his own loss of a friend? Was he weeping for the grief and havoc that death has brought to this family and community? Was he weeping for the unbelief of some of the people in the crowd that day? Was he weeping for the hypocrisy of the religious leaders who were already conspiring to kill him? Yes. He was weeping for all of it, I believe. And not just weeping. John tells us that he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. The words describe fury. The, the literal snorting of a warhorse as it charges into battle. That day, Jesus was as sad and angry as you and I are over the, over the shooting in Nashville, over the war in Ukraine, over cancer and hunger and racism and deaths of despair and everything that's wrong with the world and with people. And on this day, Jesus determined to do something about it, to show people what we were made for, to live, and to show people that he was the way to that life and personhood. John says, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. And then, like a warrior strapping on his sword, like a champion calling for the next opponent, he says, take away the stone. Now the people protest. It's been four days. The body will stink. But Jesus looks to heaven anyway and then called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Now, how it happened exactly, we don't know. But at the sound of those words, the stench of death was overcome by the sweet perfume of life. At those words, muscles stiff with rigor mortis flexed with strength. Skin that was cold and hard became soft and warm. Beneath the face cloth, those chalky white cheeks flushed with color. The heart beat once and then again, and then again, as blood flowed through now open veins and arteries, lungs filled with air, nerve endings twitched, electrical impulses sent a message to the brain, I'm alive, I'm alive, Jesus is calling me. And moments later, Lazarus stepped out of the grave and into the light, fully alive, fully himself. And has often been noted, it's a good thing Jesus said Lazarus because otherwise every grave in Bethany might have opened up.
then, Jesus said to the stupefied onlookers, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Now let me ask you, what kind of life do you think Lazarus lived from that day on? Don't you think he lived every day with a sense of, of gratitude, a sense of confidence, a sense of purpose that he never had before? Don't you think he thought about Jesus every day for the rest of his life, wanting to, to make the most of every day Jesus had given him? And don't you think he lived the rest of his life without fear, knowing that the one who saved him from the grave could save him from anything life threw at him? You see, when Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, he wasn't just talking about the life to come. He was talking about this life, too. Because spiritual life, life to the full and life forever, begins the moment we turn to Christ and say, Yes, Lord, I believe. Now, having heard this ancient and hard-to-believe story, I'd like us to hear a contemporary story of another resurrection of sorts. Another man who had his life given back to him when he had just about lost it to pain and sadness and his own human frailty. Now, let's give a listen to Kevin's story, and then I'll come back and wrap things up. Yeah, One, I think two, three, four, five. <laughs> I, I mean, all right. So I've got turkey, I've got bacon, I've got stuffing. Are you guys in? Yeah, oh yeah. Oh yeah. I remember when we met. You know, it was right here. I mean, I remember I'd come in, dying for a turkey terrific, and. We just got to know each other. Pretty soon you asked me, like, what did I do? Yeah, what do you do? So I remember when we talked about faith and you had some questions. I grew up uh, with um, two loving parents that were very religious mm -hmm. and had us in church every Sunday. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was 10, I lost my dad. My dad passed from cancer. And so it left a big, um, a big void in my family. And I wanted to escape from that. And, uh, and I picked up alcohol to help like medicate that pain. Everything started to suffer. So as time went on, um, getting into my later teens, early 20s, um, I realized how hurt I was and, 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 and how I felt inside. And, um, and I didn't want to feel that way anymore. I didn't want to live that way anymore. I, I started to try to turn my life around on my own. and. Um, tried a million different things and nothing was working. And then one day, I, it, it had struck me that I was powerless, that I needed help and I couldn't do this thing on my own. I was guided to a 12-step program. When I, when I came into recovery, I was this real scared kid and I wasn't talking at meetings. Well, one day I said to a couple of the old timers, I said, I'm ready to do this. It was two years. I had been there two years. Wow. I'm ready to start writing. Any change in recovery requires work. So that, that's been my life. I never 
lost my faith completely. Um, I always had a God in my life. I turned away um, when I was in, in the darkest part of my um, teenage years. And uh, I returned to church after being absent wow. for many years. And I remember, I remember my first service after seven, eight years of not being there, the priest spoke up and said, there's somebody here that hasn't been here <laughs> in many years. Can wow. we say a prayer? And he didn't point or, yeah. but he knew. And, uh, and so my faith um, began to be restored. My faith had been growing over the years, and, but I, I was still searching for something and I had questions. I think I ended up at Grace by accident. I, I, I wanted to attend a service somewhere else and it, I had the wrong time and I ended up across the street. Hey, I'm glad you came. And then you told me, you said, don't worry, we welcome you and, 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 and you can attend both and, and, and no pressure. And I was just like, oh. I just could breathe and, and I felt so welcome there. I've just enjoyed, yeah. you know, our friendship because yeah. that started our friendship and then, you know, yeah. we've done things together. And, and I remember I invited you to Alpha. I love Alpha. I think I've done Alpha with you four times. I had a lot of questions, you know, about, about Jesus. And it was really an education. The best part of Alpha is, is the discussion at the table is getting everybody's yeah. input. Yeah. And uh, so... And letting everybody be where they are yeah. in their, yeah. on their, in their yeah. own, own journeys. How would you describe how Jesus has affected the way you manage your team here? I think I have a lot of patience, a lot of tolerance, a lot of understanding. I have a lot of long-term employees because we work through our stuff. And, and I think I get that from, from my faith. I feel like I'm no longer moving away from Jesus, I'm moving towards Jesus and surrendering my, my life to Jesus. And it, it, it feels like I have a new freedom. I just want you to know my, our friendship means so much to me. Um, and I'm so glad that you took my invitation to come over to Grace yeah, yeah. because that's how I've gotten to know you. And, yeah. you know, we've done, you know, Alpha together and, you know, we swim together and we do different things. And yeah. so I, I really appreciate you, as, you as, as a friend. Yeah. Um, I love you like a brother. <laughs> same here. And thanks for the turkey All terrific. Right. Right, you're welcome. My pleasure. <laughs>
was working. You see, here's the thing about the word resurrect. It's a passive verb. The action of the verb has to be done to you or for you. You can't resurrect yourself. You can only be resurrected. Even Jesus had to be resurrected. Remember how we said that what happened at Lazarus' tomb was a prequel to what would happen at another tomb a short time later outside Jerusalem? The victory over death wasn't really accomplished there in Bethany. That was just a setup for what Jesus was going to do for Lazarus and all of us a short time later. Tim Keller puts it this way. The only way Jesus could get Lazarus out of the tomb was to put himself in it. Jesus didn't just weep for everything that was wrong with the world and us. He actually experienced everything that was wrong with the world and us, including physical death. And then he conquered everything that was wrong with the world and with us. The Apostle Peter explained it this way. God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And because God resurrected Jesus, Jesus can now resurrect us, physically and spiritually, from whatever kind of death we are experiencing. And that's what Kevin discovered after turning to Jesus and trusting his life and future to him. I feel like I have a new freedom, Kevin said. Freedom to love and serve the people around him, to do his job with excellence and purpose, to help others find their way to Jesus, and to make the most of every day the Lord gives him on this earth. But it wasn't a change he could make in his own strength. It was a transformation, a resurrection that he received when he started moving toward Jesus, who calls himself the resurrection and the life. If you feel like you need a change, if like Kevin, you don't want to live the way you're living anymore, the resurrected Jesus can resurrect you. And if like Martha, you're feeling sad and fearful in the face of death, the resurrected Jesus is offering you life on both sides of the grave. So, so, so I leave you with the question Jesus asked Martha that day. Do you believe this? Now, maybe you don't, or maybe you're not sure, and that's okay. It's a lot to believe. But with the stakes as high as life and death and eternity, it sure seems like it's worth a closer look. So read the rest of John's Gospel. Start there in chapter 11. Go right on through to the end. Join us for one of the Alpha courses that you heard Kevin talk about. It's a fun, friendly way to explore some of the big questions of life and faith. Maybe you do believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, but like Martha, you've only thought of it in terms of the life to come, the sweet by and by. Well, it's nice to know there's more life waiting for you on the other side of the grave. 
But Jesus wanted Martha and everyone else to know that there's more life to be had on this side of the grave. It's not just about the sweet by and by. It's about the here and now. Take off the grave clothes and let them go, Jesus said. Turn them loose. Set them free. Let them live. And that's what he would say to you today. You are free. Free to live the life and become the person you were meant to be and born to be and deep in your heart have always wanted to be. Because if Jesus is the resurrection and the life, then with him, you can have life to the full now and forever. Let's pray for a moment. Thank you, Lord, for this great day and for the message of Easter and all that it means for us and for our world. I pray, Lord, for everyone who might be feeling the sting of death today, grieving a loss. I pray that you would comfort them with the promise of resurrection. I pray for those who may be in a dark place today, who may feel stuck at a dead end. I pray they might turn towards you and start moving in your direction. And I pray for every person listening today that each of us would hear you calling our names, that we would rise up and follow you into life in all of its fullness. In the name of Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. Amen.